0: Hi, I'm Doc Stull, and welcome to New Books in Jazz. Today we're speaking with jazz scholar Brian Harker about his new book, Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven Recordings, published by Oxford University Press 2011. Dr. Harker, who teaches at Brigham Young University, highlights seven representative songs from a trove of more than 70 recordings Armstrong made between 1925 and 1928. His book illuminates how Armstrong's novelty Musical solo narratives, chord progressions, sweet and hot admixtures, and technical virtuosity consolidated much of the disparate elements in jazz and how Armstrong moved the solo to center stage. Armstrong's genius, energy, innovation, creative courage, and commercial savvy and opportunism influenced the subsequent development of jazz for the rest of the century. Parker's book is a wondrous amalgam of rigorous musical analysis, cultural contexts, and fascinating anecdotes about one of the 20th century's most gifted, creative, and beloved performers.
1: It's a great read, Brian, and I really admired your lovely self-deprecating tone. You know, you hear so much academies about jazz, and you do an admirable job. But uh, you also don't take yourself totally seriously either. And it's sure. it's off. So you, you really love your subject, so I I really enjoyed that.
2: It uh, does my heart good uh, anytime I hear someone you know who's who's pleased with it. It's uh, you do a lot of work to produce a book, as you know, and then you never know what people think about it unless they tell you. And it's always a joy to hear that.
1: All right. Well, uh, thoroughly enjoyable, and I really learned a lot. Uh, Tell me a little bit about yourself, uh, where you were raised, and and your influences, and then ultimately how you you came to this project.
2: Okay. Uh, Well, I'm from Canada and grew up in California. Um, Mm -hmm. I started playing the trumpet when I was 13, and became an avid jazz nut um, as a player, mostly, for many years. Um, and then went to college, um, studied music, um, and then I had <clears throat> had problems with my teeth that uh, made me have to stop playing. And so I turned to academics and went to graduate school uh, and did a Ph.D. Uh, in jazz history at Columbia and uh, then uh, and I did my dissertation on Louis Armstrong then I got a job uh, teaching at BYU here in Provo and I've been there ever since 1997 and I teach um, music history classes um, some jazz history but also um, western art music history um, don't play much anymore, but mostly spend my time uh, either teaching or doing research, um, writing about jazz.
1: And let me ask you: uh, Going back, you said you grew up in in California. Did Did you play in in like junior high and high school stage bands? And were you a, a collector, a record collector then?
2: Uh, I did, uh, yeah, I did collect records um, uh, avidly, compulsively for a little while, anyway and uh and yeah i played all through school and played professionally for about 10 years um and played in college bands um played pretty steadily up until about uh, 19 uh, yeah 1988 i guess
1: okay i'm just trying to place you. i'm 58 i i grew up in berkeley and the in palo alto areas so i just i wondered if you uh were were in that particular part of the country
2: i was in santa barbara um I, I was born in '63, so I'm 50 now, uh, and went went to uh, graduated from high school in 1981. I was, but I grew up in Santa Barbara.
1: How was your approach in this project different from previous jazz scholars? What did you do differently in your approach to looking at Louis Armstrong's music?
2: Yeah, well, um, I think what I what I tried to do is. I was trying to figure out what he did in the 20s that made him special and how it related to what was going on at the time. In other words, my interest is always uh, trying to connect the music to the person and the times, Um, the context, the the history. um, You know, I'm trying to get inside the skin of of the person I'm writing about. You know, what motivated him? What was he thinking about? uh, Rather than how do we regard it? 50, 70 years later. Um, and so, you know, with Armstrong, for instance, I was, I was really trying to understand what this whole idea of novelty meant and what it would have meant to a young guy like him um, when he was coming up uh, and, and how that related to his music and how it affected the way he played.
1: Tell the, the listeners just a little bit about the Hot Five recordings. And then you picked these six uh, this was the first of the six. So what were the Hot Five recordings, and and why did you pick this one out?
2: Hmm. Well, yeah, the Hot Five recordings w- were a series of some 70-odd records, 78 L- uh, RPM records that Armstrong made between late 1925 and uh, late 1928. And this was with a small New Orleans-style group, um, all friends of his, people he knew well, people he felt comfortable with. It was not a working band. It was a recording band strictly, with maybe one or two exceptions. Um, And uh, in all of these records, there's a few that sort of bubbled to the top and became beloved by connoisseurs and jazz lovers. Um, I should say that the whole series was enormously influential, on uh, jazz musicians at the time who were paying attention to them. And then and particularly later in the 30s and 40s as, as people um, discovered what was happening back in the 20s, and, uh, musicians and critics kept going back to the Hot Fives. They became sort of a touchstone for, uh, for jazz in its you know, early formative stages. Um, because Armstrong in this series you know, really sort of defined the parameters of, of what jazz ought to be or um, at least according to the consensus of later generations. Um, and so it was just very, very influential series. And I chose these recordings for different reasons. Um, in, the ta- in the case of Ch- Cornet Chop Suey, it's a really nice example of, um, of Armstrong's early interest in virtuosity on the one hand, playing fast um, and, and playing difficult lines. And uh, my interest was also in connecting that with his interest in clarinet style, which he taught in life um, says, so you know, I was playing like a clarinet, I was trying to imitate these clarinet players, um, and uh, so I, you know, I want to talk about cornet chop suey as sort of like, uh, exhibit A for that that interest. Um, and then the other the other records that I chose, um, and they're not the only records I could have chosen, or someone else could have chosen. But I think they're pretty standard in the sort of the pantheon of great Louis Armstrong records. But I chose them for for different reasons. Um, Potato Head Blues uh, Mm. reflects his interest in harmony, uh, in my view. Uh, S.O.L. Blues is interested in high notes. Um, Savoy Blues we have the sweet influence. West End Blues kind of a mix of all of the things he'd been doing. Um, So, like I say, I. I picked them somewhat arbitrarily, but to communicate uh, particular um, you know, interests that he had, or at least that I, I conceived that he had at the time.
1: Yeah, and I must say the way you laid it out for somebody like me who's more of a, an aficionado, I'm not an academic coming at jazz, but somebody who just really appreciates it, your, your chapter titles are, are one novelty: cornet chop Suey. Chapter two: Telling a story. Big Butter and Eggman, three, Playing the Changes, Potato Head Blues, uh, number four, Top Notes, SOL Blues, Gully Low Blues, uh, where he's going for the the high seas and, and beyond, sweet music, Savoy Blues, which I really enjoyed, uh, Armstrong's Love of Guy Lombardo, which you wrote uh, Horrified uh, Critics, um, and then uh, Versatility, West End Blues, so I, you, you put it in context really well for somebody who's simply an aficionado, okay. but you go into some pretty Deep uh, analysis for people who are studied musicians who want to really understand that. So I, I thought you hit. I thought he hit both areas pretty well. I think you you reach two audiences pretty well in your book, and a lot of anecdotes as well. I I, I really love some of uh, Louis' uh, personal anecdotes that that you you tell about. Tell a little bit about Big Butter and Eggman, which is the the, the, the second um, chapter there, telling a story, and and how that fits into the whole narrative, as it were, in in jazz in the last century. <laughs>
2: Well, okay. I think that's a big man, an important record because of its its architecture. Essentially, it was uh, this was a time when lengthy solos were um, uh, were not as common, at least as as best we can tell from the recorded record. Um, and when they were performed, oftentimes they were kind of haphazard or slapdash, with not a lot of strong. You know, structural connections, holding them together, Armstrong comes along and plays Big But and Eggman, which is this you know beautifully conceived and organized solo uh that really hangs together in just about every possible detail uh, It's interesting that this record this record was one or the solo was one that he had evidently worked out in advance and played over and over again the same way. You know, he worked hard to get it just the way he wanted it. And you could see that in the very careful um, structure that it uh, demonstrates. And this is a thing about this record that critics noticed early on. Um, uh, Gunther Schuller and Andre Hoder and others recognized this this solo is just beautifully organized. Um, and so I used B- Big Better than Eggman uh, to show an example of Armstrong's seemingly innate gifts Uh, as an organizer, as an an organizer of music within an improvisational setting. Um, And it's really hard to to know how that organization affected, you know, subsequent musicians, but it it seems plausible at least. Uh, Well, first of all, we know that musicians were paying attention to this solo. They knew it, they learned it, um, and it seems, uh, like I said, plausible that that this solo may have sort of turned enough heads to... That a whole generation um, in the direction of uh, you know more organized careful thoughtful playing
1: yeah and you mentioned in what you just said about Armstrong's innate gifts but you also mentioned and take pains to yeah. mention in the book that obviously he went over and over and over and practiced over and over and over so it was the result of obviously somebody who who, who had genius but also practiced endlessly uh, to get it to get it right
2: yeah, i think that's i think that's absolutely true and and uh and we you know sometimes you get the feeling with things and reading about early jazz it was all just spontaneous and they just walked in and did it uh but uh, you know armstrong was a very serious and committed professional uh, and spent as you say spent hours uh uh you know working on things on the bandstand off the bandstand um, and I think, I think his art was, was more, um, more steady and deliberate than is given credit for.
1: I wanted to move on to playing the changes in, in Potato Head Blues, but one thing that really stood out in your book, uh, in your description of Armstrong and your analysis, he was a creature of commercialism, but it wasn't crass. He, he himself uh, said, look, I'm I'm trying to make a buck and yeah. and if if only musicians listened to musicians I I I'd, I'd never I'd never make it no one would ever make any money right. and and so that his integration of of novelty things and playing high seas and 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 all of these things were attracted to, to to gain an audience and his flirtation with sweet music and Guy Lombardo which horrified jazz people but he went you know where he loved but he also went where the money was but that didn't really get in the way of his artistry he didn't comment on his own artistry it's it's people like you in retrospect who who see it but he was just really a regular guy and took took pains to emphasize that that he was a regular guy that he was trying to make a buck
2: yeah yeah i think so uh, he he had an amazing gift to take uh you know very pedestrian musical materials and sort of put his own spin out and, and make it artistic and beautiful um so like you say even when you're playing pretty trite material uh not <laughs> always but but sometimes you know you just really create something memorable and special out of it
1: so talk about potato head blues and playing the changes and and how that differed in your analysis from big butter and Eggman.
2: hmm yeah, with Kato Blues, <coughs> it, it's a striking solo because it's, it's so arpeggiated, in the sense that uh, it's a very chordal, um, not as uh, musicians would say linear or melodic uh, uh, in, in its structure, but it's very sort of up and down playing chords. Um, and that's, it was interesting to me because um, prior to Armstrong, trumpet players really didn't focus a heck of a lot on it. Playing arpeggios, um, and and after Armstrong, and particularly in the '30s, uh, that that completely changes. Um, not only trumpet players mm-hmm. and saxophonists, other um, musicians from the swing era often play arpeggiated solos um, because by that time um, they were not playing melodic paraphrases so much anymore, or you know, um, uh, sort of modified versions of the melody, but they were playing on the chord progression mm-hmm. itself, and so it makes sense that they would be playing more chordally-based solos, and and as I, again, as I see it, uh, Potato Red Blues was sort of a, an early manifestation of that interest in playing on the chords rather than on the chord progression, or, uh, excuse me, rather than on the, um, the melody, per se.
1: Were contemporaries doing the same thing at that time?
2: Uh, well, it's it's hard to find contemporary trumpet players doing that. Um, now the interesting thing is that uh, you do see clarinet players and saxophone players uh, playing more, more on the chords um, because their instruments lent themselves more to playing chordal passages. So, for instance, Coleman Hawkins, you know, some of his early solos are, are fairly arpeggiated um, but not so much trumpet players. Uh, and I think I think it would be safe to say that, you know, on any instrument, um, the harmony-based solo um, was not all that common uh, before Armstrong's time and that he really helped to change that.
1: I, I want to go back because I missed something and I apologize to the listeners that I, I wanted to go back looking at my notes that... That You mentioned that, that Armstrong was influenced by dance and in particular by a dance team and was really, really enamored of, of their dance rhythms and integrated their dance rhythms into his soloing. Yeah. Could you talk about that a little bit?
2: Well, yeah, there was this dance team called and McGraw that he played with um, at the Sunset Cafe uh, in nineteen six and, and 1927. Um, And they were from New Orleans. Uh, It seems possible, maybe probable, that Armstrong knew them in New Orleans. They were, um, I think, a little bit younger than him, um, but they were in the same basic age cohort. Uh, And, yeah, Doc Cheatham and others used to talk about how at the Sunset Cafe, Armstrong would play, play notes that matched their dance steps, and they were They were known as a very sort of energetic and boisterous uh, tap dancing team. Um, And the other thing is that, um, according to uh, Earl Hines, the pianist that used to hang out with Armstrong in the 20s, he says that uh, one of the numbers that Armstrong did with Donna McGraw was Big Butter and Eggman. Um, And so as I look at Big Butter and Eggman, it seems to me that there is a new richness of rhythmic vocabulary there, um, and I'm just speculating uh, that this richness might have been inspired by his in accompanying these dancers and their, you know, their very complicated dance steps.
1: Really interesting. So that that was Big Butter and Eggman, Man. Not only. Telling a story, but the dance rhythms. Yeah. Uh, we we talked about Potato Head Blues, which was playing the changes and and uh, and, and going through those changes, which which were not um, typical of of trumpet players of the day. The the next uh, chapter you talk about is uh, SOL blues i i guess we can't say that on the air but uh i i i imagine uh most of us can can figure that out and and slow gully or uh, gully low blues uh talk a little bit about that and and why you pick picked that out as kind of a seminal recording for louis armstrong
2: well it's a, a uh first of all S-O-L blues and gully low blues have almost exactly the same solo they're recorded a day apart and uh and they have exact, almost note-for-note note, the same solo. We know from other solos that this, this again, was not unusual for Armstrong to have a solo that he sort of worked up, and it became set, and he'd play it the same way every time. Um, but in any case, uh, the solo in this case is uh, interesting for, at least to me anyway, for its amazing series of just, you know, um, very loud and brilliant high C's, um, which was uh, unusual for the, for the time. At that time, high C was sort of the tap uh, note in a in a trumpet in a working trumpet player's range. Um, and uh, <clears throat> ordinarily, um, players from that time didn't have a powerful high register. Armstrong's high C's on these recordings are amazingly brilliant and powerful. Um, and of course as you look at his career after <clears throat> this these recordings from 1927 you see his interest in high notes are just continuing and he she, you know he raises that level from high C to D to E flat to E to F um and there's stories mm-hmm. in the 1930s of him uh, you know, going after these high notes over and over and over again until finally he injures himself and, uh, you know, busts his lip open, blood coming down uh, his tuxedo front and so forth. Uh, it was apparently an obsession with him. And we have to understand that, you know, the reason was he was new and different. There was no other trumpet player at that time playing that high with that much power, um, and is galvanizing to other young players, you know, and and very, very soon you you see in the 1930s and 40s other players, both black and white, jumping on that bandwagon, learning to play those high notes, equaling Armstrong and then exceeding Armstrong. So you've got, you know, people like Maynard Ferguson in the 1950s who were going way beyond what Armstrong ever did, but building clearly on his achievements. Um, And anyway... So Gully Low Blues and S.O.L. Blues uh, are recording. And me <coughs> sort of showed this first interest in, in powerful swaggering.
1: Yeah, I was I was reading that, um, and I was thinking that it's kind of the jazz analogy of the X Games, you know, where you you go higher and higher until he busts his lip, you know, uh, and 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 that's where that great quote you put in, where he says uh, a diminished seventh don't mean a thing to them. But they go for high notes. After all, the public is paying. Right. If musicians depended on musicians at the box office, they would starve to death. Mm-hmm. Well, let's move on to the the next uh, selection that you have in your book, uh, which was sweet music and Savoy blues. And I was uh, amazed to f- to find out that uh, that Louis loved Guy Lombardo. It was his mm-hmm. it was his favorite favorite band. And talk a little bit about sweet music. Uh, what was the appeal of sweet mus- music in the marketplace, and and how did Armstrong become involved in Guy Lombardo? And and then you have a, a great backstory about that too. You might want to tell the the listeners.
2: Mm, okay. Um, well, okay. So sweet music was uh, it was a sort of a modified approach to jazz. Um, that was pioneered by Paul Whiteman and other white bands. Uh, I mean, they might not even call it jazz. It doesn't sound very jazz. Um, but at the time, it was called Sweet Jazz. Um, and it emphasized uh, pretty melodies and uh, you know, um, slow romantic phrasing um, and rich harmonies. And uh, later... Jazz critics and fans often scorned this music as being, you know, phony jazz, uh, not jazz at all, um, corny music and so forth. But in fact, it's very, very popular with, you know, several generations of, of young kids who, uh, uh, you know, would basically use it for romance. This was music to, to court by. And, and it appears that perhaps Armstrong was influenced in that way as well. Because um, he talks about listening to Guy Lombardo at this particular flat where it is known that they would he and his friends would, lose. and so it you know this very romantic music um, was something that really captured his, his uh, imagination he 's the first to tell us that, and, and he loved this music and particularly guy lombardo 's take on on sweet music um, what 's interesting is that Savoy blues. Uh, was a record that was made very shortly after um, he started listening to Guy Lombardo um, in uh, not only on the radio but in live performances in chicago um, and uh, again a lot of this the things that i 'm writing about in this book are speculative and I understand that there's, there's no there 's no proof he never said you know that this particular solo reflects uh, my interest in Lombardo. But in my uh, hearing, at least, I listen to his solo on Savoy Blues, and I can hear uh, elements in his playing that really remind me strongly of sweet music. Um, in a couple of respects. First of all, in the harmony, he's, he's using rich harmonies that he had not used to a great extent before. Um, and in Savoy Blues, he's using what uh, musicians call. Uh, higher extensions of the triad the 7th, the 9th, the, the 11th the thir- 13th even um, and and the, the second thing that he's using is uh, a very uh, languid and free uh, almost rubato use of rhythm and both of those um, uh, those elements the, the rich harmonies and these kind of slow uh, languid rhythms are very much characteristics of Guy Lombardo's music from this time. And so I'm I'm suggesting that, you know, perhaps he was inspired as he made this Savoy blues solo uh, by his interest in Lombardo and perhaps even by the specific recording coquette because there's uh, there are some certain musical gestures that Armstrong sure uses that sound very much like coquette to me anyway. So take that for what it's worth.
1: <laughs> yeah, and then and then his then his memories of his own romantic liaisons, right. uh, listening listening to Lombardo. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's really great. The last piece you discuss is uh, one that many jazz jazz scholars say is one of the great pieces of all time, and you talk about West End Blues. Uh, tell us. W- why you felt West End Blues was uh, important in in this collection of, of songs that you picked out.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, you can, uh, I think, with, as with all these recordings, you can take mm-hmm. lots of different approaches to them, but the one that I chose uh, to emphasize on West End Blues was his interest in uh, versatility, and this was something that every serious, popular musician had to be concerned with, um, which essentially, um, I-, I simply mean, uh, they had to be a, be able to play in all kinds of musical contexts to fit into you know whatever stylist um, context was required at the time and there were several different possible uh, con- jazz related contexts and there were also, there was also occasionally um, the need to play classical music um, oftentimes uh, you know it might seem strange to us today, but at these nightclubs Armstrong would occasionally play classical transcriptions of um, these, you know, usually operatic excerpts, actually, um, from Wagner or Verdi. Uh, And so, you know, uh, any, again, any serious uh, young pop musician had to be, be ready to be able to play those things. The other thing that's going on here is that among some, there was this idea that That classical music really was better than jazz. That it uh, that it you know reflected higher um, aesthetic sensibilities. It it reflected greater artistic sensitivity. It was just you know superior in some way. Um, And that to really show you know prove yourself, you needed to be able to play at a high level in in the classical repertoire. And we know at this time that, uh, that Armstrong was kind of being dogged by a young rival trumpet player named Reuben Reeves, um, who had been actually well-trained classically. He uh, apparently um, completed a, a, a master's degree at the American Conservatory. Um, and so he, you know, he was uh, kind of known for his, his legit or his classical training. And so when we come to West End Blues, one of the things that strikes me about this recording is the the, the technical mastery that it exhibits. Now, all along, Armstrong has to some degree uh, distinguished himself from his peers with his his ability, you know, on the horn. But when you look at his earlier recordings, they may be brilliant solos on Potato Red Blues or Butter, Big Butter and Eggman, but the execution um is a little rough by comparison with uh a, a recording like West End Blues which seems much more polished and whatever we think of you know the virtues of classical music versus jazz uh i think it's it's safe to say that classical music emphasizes polish and refinement uh technical refinement to a greater degree than certainly early jazz did and so when we when you know I hear all this polish in West End Blues, it seems to me that Armstrong was really honing his classical chops, possibly in response to uh, the threat from Reuben Reeves. And at least that's sort of the case that I make um, in this chapter. Um, and in addition to that, we actually have some classical figures showing up in West End Blues. We have. Uh, or classically-based figures, anyway, not, not actual quotes or anything like that from classical repertory, but, but classically-related um, figures, arpeggios that don't sound like clarinets, but sound more like sort of um, classical cornet cadenzas uh, and so forth, especially in that famous mm-hmm. opening solo that he plays. Um, but then we've also got other things showing up. We have, you know, blues references. We have sort of modified clarinet figures. Uh, we've, got, we've got some uh, very gorgeous, sweet uh, passages. Uh, and so as I hear West End Blues, I hear sort of a, a, a melange of different styles um, that Armstrong had absorbed over the years and that he's presenting um, in this sort of tour de force of, uh, you know, musical versatility
1: that, uh, for that time, almost like a a jazz decathlon, yeah. and he he integrated all. He was the, the greatest in the world because he he could do all these different things yeah. well. Um, how do your students respond to to Louis Armstrong when you introduce and, and you, you, I assume you, you teach like general music appreciation courses at Brigham Young? Mm-hmm. How do young people today respond to Louis Armstrong when they hear his early recordings, like the ones that you talk about in your book?
2: Well, it's interesting. The first thing I do for my classes is I play the recording "What a Wonderful World" for them—the famous record that he made in the late '60s—and um, I ask first by both who who has never heard this, and I have yet to find a single student who hasn't. Um, And my point there is to indicate that here in 2013, Armstrong uh, is still, you know, very, very well-known and well-recognized by uh, the present generation, even if they don't know who he is, even if they don't know his name or would recognize uh, his picture, they still know his music, at least in that one instance, um, which is a, a testament to Armstrong's, you know, longevity, I mean, his career lasted, uh, you know, so many decades from the 20s through the 60s and the, the very, very early 70s, um, and still he's, you know, he's impacting uh, the the kids that are coming up today. And so that's the first point that I make, is that he's a he's a part of their musical lives, whether they know it or not. But then when I, I and then I tell him, well, but we're going to go back, you know, to the early stages, so and we're going to listen to some of the most important recordings he made in his formative years. I think those recordings are a little more difficult for them to to relate to, um, partly because of the poor recording fidelity uh, at the time, uh, the static, and the, um, it just kind of sounds distant to them, I think. But one thing they can grasp is the, you know, the intense charisma um, that he projects. And I usually show them a um, a clip from um, Armstrong performing in 1933, that famous clip uh, where he does, like, over the waterfront um, and uh, Dinah. And they, you know, they are immediately struck by, again, his, his charisma on stage, uh, his magnetism as a performer. That is also evident in his more straight sort of jazz solos from the 20s.
1: I remember Louis Armstrong because of in, in your generation because of Hello Dolly, again through film.
2: Yeah,
1: and yeah. and and then and then and and, and, and actually Armstrong himself. You mentioned in, in in your book that he was proud of his films and radio yeah. programs much more than his recordings. Right. Yeah. So it's interesting how American popular culture introduces people and like Louis Armstrong, and then you go back and then and and then you learn later what type of an influence they truly had.
2: In Armstrong's case, like, like you say, he, he seemed to you know, really be proudest of his sort of most high-profile achievements um, in some respects uh, because that was important for him as a black man in you know, 20th century America to feel that he was getting in front of the people, that he was um, um, being rewarded for his talent by a large audience. Um, and yet, as, as you say, ironically, um, his music, which was so popular, was also the, the impetus for this you know, very sort of focused, hardcore, um, elite interest in jazz as an art form. Um, so he sort of lived, sparked both phenomena simultaneously.
1: Brian, you've spent a portion of your life studying this guy. Do you feel like you know him?
2: <laughs> that's a that's a good question. Um, I feel, in some respects, I do. Uh, I think he's, he's not he's not as enigmatic as a lot of uh, some of these public figures um, are. I think with Armstrong, what you see is really what you get. You know, um, he was he was a very honest and uh, genuine person, um, evidently. And, uh, he, you know, he was, he would talk about, you know, not wanting to put on airs and, and that's exactly the way he lived his life. So I don't think Armstrong as a person was a big mystery. Um, the way someone like Duke Ellington and, um, Miles Davis represent, you know, much more enigmatic, um, and opaque personalities to the public, it's very difficult to know where they're coming from oftentimes, um, what's you know, pure put on, and what's
1: uh, what, what's the real deal. Yeah, you, you, your epilogue, I thought, was really interesting, talking about how Armstrong had this book that was given to him, the biographies of, of, of famous African Americans, and, and how he would put check marks by certain ones, and that, that one was actually consciously left off where you could tell that he was leaving it off for a reason. I thought that was interesting, just kind of an interesting cultural uh, look into, into Louis Armstrong relating to what you just said about him really not trying to put on airs and, and what you see is what you get.
2: Yeah. Yeah. That, that's right. Yeah. And that was W.E.B. Du Bois. Um, uh, Armstrong felt that, that Du Bois, was really headed in the wrong direction that he was he was trying to uh, he was trying to um, elevate the race in a way that that was um, sort of as Armstrong would have put stuck up or conceded, um, putting on airs uh, emphasizing education and you know high credentials and so forth, which Armstrong never put any uh, you know credence in. Um and so he you know, he I think he was he would have been I think he was just sort of contemptuous of what uh Du Bois stood for um in terms of his politics and his his ideas of of how to advance the race. I mean Armstrong was, was every bit as interested in advancing his race, achieving um equality, civil rights and so forth, but he just Differed with Du Bois and Du Bois's spiritual descendants Martin Luther King and others uh, in the way that those goals were achieved
1: yeah well you've you've got a lot in that book ryan i'm 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 amazed i you, I can see it being used in American studies classes and obviously music classes with the music analysis but uh, there's really really a lot there and a lot of food for thought and I think it's I really commend you i, I I really enjoyed it.
0: You've been listening to New Books in Jazz with Doc Stowe. Today's guest was Dr. Brian Harker, who spoke about his new book, Louis Armstrong's Hot Five and Hot Seven Recordings, published by Oxford University Press, 2011. Dr. Harker's next book will be a biography of another great jazz trumpeter, Miles Davis. Next time on New Books and Jazz, we'll be talking to Keith Waters about his new book, The Studio Recordings of the Miles Davis Quintet, 1965-1968. to 1968. Don't miss it. For New Books and Jazz, I'm Doc Stull with the New Books Network.